All right. Hey, everybody. Let's see if we are all... Yep, looks like we're all good. Hi. Welcome to Critical Q&A for the 26th of November in 2023. And... um, and here we are. I this will be um, the last Q and A show for the year for for 2023 because I'm I'm going to be uh, as I think of all all of you have gotten the word I'm going to be taking some December time off. I will still now what I forgot to totally say in the podcast on Saturday is that um, I am still doing the show with Tony every week. Uh, so after Scientology, straight up and vertical, uh, every Monday at noon, still dropping every week all through December. So you will still see that uh, as we go. Let's go ahead and uh, flip over to get the chat up on the screen here. And uh, there we go. Here's all the folks here, all the usual suspects and critics. Hey, everybody. So happy to see you all here today. Um, I know. I know. Uh, I was a little back and forth on the... Um, uh, no going live this week. I I really prefer doing live. I mean, I really do because I like interacting with you guys directly. Um, but I wasn't sure how the weekend was going to go and stuff, and then it's then it kind of worked out, and so here we are. But um, I've got a I've got you guys have been sending me some great questions. The queue has been building up, and uh, and like and we'll definitely hit the ground running in 24 with some of those great questions you all sent. And keep sending them to me, by the way, because uh, I'll just keep building up my queue through through the holiday season here. Um, okay, good. Now let's go ahead and set up the Q and A. So please put your questions here. Okay, and once I get that set up here, um, start Q&A. Okay, good. So now I am not seeing necessarily, I see some of the chat as it's going, but I am looking for questions uh, placed under the please put your questions here comment that I just posted up at the top of the chat. And I think for for y'all, uh, from your end of it, that's a uh, that looks like a comment up at the top of the comment section or something like that. So you guys, uh, you guys, let me know. But you go ahead and throw them in there. Um, oh, good. I'm glad. I'm glad you guys like this format too. It's it's fun for me. I enjoy doing it. Uh, there we go. Okay, good. Oh, great. Okay, here comes some questions. Um, and then uh, the other things. Was there other things I wanted to say? Um, bah, bah, bah. no, just, oh, just, I did, I did already, um, uh, secure the, uh, the domain name for the Speaking of Cults podcast. That's a done deal now. So nobody can, nobody else can get that. I realized I was announcing it and announcing it. I was like, shit, I better get that domain name before somebody else tries to, you know, in case somebody's trying to sabotage it. So I got that. And, um, and so that's secure. That was the, that was the, the biggest thing. Everything else is, is graphics and branding stuff, which I'm going to be doing, uh, over December. So that'll be fun. Um, okay, so, <laughs> yes, I know. Okay, we'll get to that. We will get to that, Lofu Kitchen. So here, let's go ahead and stop throwing up, start throwing up the questions. Um, here is the first one. Hey, Chris, what do you think Church of Scientology will do for future events in the aftermath of apostate Alex protest? Much more aggressive. Um, 
I think that they are going to beef up. Okay, I think, okay, so Apostate Alex, uh, wonderful friend, um, did organize and set up a protest of the Church of Scientology's annual IAS, International Association of Scientologists, event in the UK this year. Uh, it's held every year in October, at least it had been being held every year in October, and they COVID and other things, they shut it down, they, they stopped doing events for years. Um, and we have talked about the fact that shutting down those events has an effect on the mindset of Scientologists, because if you're not continually re-upped, you know, so to speak, if you don't go get your fix of, of misinformation from David Miscavige off the, you know, off the stage and get that whole social activity, then um, some of the, you know, some of the sort of Scientology conditioning, <laughs> you know, sort of starts wearing off. And, um, and so it's really important to Miscavige and to the movement that they get these events going. And so here was this great big event that happened, and Alex organized this great big protest uh, there, and it was awesome. So now, of course, Scientology will respond to this like they always do with things by tightening the noose, circling the wagons, and making things even harder for access to these events and making them more security conscious. And so they will get more private security. They will set up their the perimeters. They'll they'll treat it more like a military campaign, as far as or setup as far as uh, how to set up the flow of public coming into the events and monitor who's you know what external forces have access to them, you know, and all this kind of thing. The kind of thing we sort of expected them to do. When Alex was announcing for weeks that there was going to be this protest, we sort of imagined, at least I imagined, I say we, you know, I, I mean, I've spoken with Alex about this, uh, you know, off off camera, but it seems that, um, uh, oh, Alex is, is here in the chat. Great. Um, yeah, the, the apostate doth protest not enough. That is hilarious. Yeah, so anyway, so I think... Uh, yeah, so Alex and I have talked about this. Anyway, it seemed to me that, uh, you know, that they were going to beef up a lot more and that they were actually very unprepared for what Alex told them he was doing, which is hilarious. So, you know, I don't think they took it all very seriously. And I think from this point forward, they will be taking it seriously. Um I could be wrong. You know, destructive cults can be pretty damn stupid sometimes. And we always marvel at how, you know, uh, cunning and clever, you know, Miscavige or Hubbard or, or Osa can be. But sometimes they can just be blatantly stupid about stuff, too, and come at people or do things that are just absolutely ludicrously dumb. Um, but they do it, you know. So, so we'll have to see, you know. So that's what makes it a little hard, hard to predict sometimes. You know, it's generally going to be kind of awful what they're going to do, but you don't necessarily know exactly, precisely how they're going to do it. So, um, anyway, so I don't know. There's, that's some that's some commentary I can give on that. Um, <laughs> you guys are so awesome. Okay, good. Um, so that is, yeah, so I think they will be more aggressive, though. And to, to directly answer the question here about that, um, absolutely. I, do, I think Scientology took a good, you know, uh, bruise to the face. And I think Alex was the one delivering it to him, right, symbolically. And, um, and I think that they are not going to underestimate him again. Uh, that's what I think. Okay, uh, so let's 
Let's carry on here. Um, Joe DiCeppo. Hey, Joe. What are you most looking forward to during your time off? Meeting my niece, Phoebe, uh, my brother's daughter. I am so looking forward to that. I, it's, I don't even have to think about it. That is the thing I am looking forward to the most. Uh, I'll be going out to California and uh, visiting with family uh, early on, in fact, next week. And I am very much looking forward to that. I miss my family. They're out in California. And um, I talk to them all the time. And in fact, over the last year or two, relationships have, have gotten tighter than they've ever been since I left home. It's really been awesome. Um, at least for, from my perspective, it has been. I think it's been going really good. And, um, and I've actually even been starting to get my feelers out with my extended family around the U.S. In fact, they're getting their feelers out to me. Um, you know, because recently, um, uh, I don't, you know, I don't really get into my family, extended family stuff very much. But recently, my mom's um, sister and two of her brothers uh, passed away. Um, my mom is the oldest of nine kids. And uh, the two oldest under her have passed and the youngest uh, of the family brood has recently passed. And so there's been some grief and, and some memorials and stuff like that going on in the family uh, on my mom's side recently. And so that's kind of brought the entire family's, you know, sort of awareness of, oh, family, yeah, you know, kind of back into the, uh, the picture for a lot of us. And so, so more, you know, kind of cousin to cousin kind of communications and things are starting to happen. And personally, I'm just kind of excited about it. It's a new thing. It's a completely new thing for me. My entire life, I've never really been connected with my extended family beyond, you know, my mom, dad, and, uh, you know, my brother so, and his family. So, um, so it's all very new to me and, it's, and I'm still, you know, figuring that out. So anyway, um, that's what I'm looking forward to. Uh, and I will say that beyond meeting Phoebe and of course seeing Cooper, my, my nephew, I mean, he's, he's just this little, uh, bundle of joy, I'm sure. <laughs> Although he definitely keeps my brother, uh, on his, you know, on his toes. Um, I think Cooper's about four, four or five or something at this point. Um, anyway, other things I'm looking forward to are, um, Spending some time with my wife, spending some time with some friends, and um, reading. I just finished, uh, just, just since you asked, I'm going to share this with you, right? Um, I just finished the first, like, non-culty, non-work-related, this-related book that I've read in, I think, in a couple, in a few years. It was Quentin Tarantino's book, uh, his latest book on cinema speculation, which is a really, really good book. And I got a couple other fiction, total fiction books now lined up to read over December. So that'll be fun. Um, so those are what I'm looking forward to. Thanks for asking. Uh, okay, let's carry on here. X Cyan is Scientology. Uh, or rather, is Scientology's the greatest good for the greatest number of dynamics, the right way to look at things, and does it justify short-term or individual harm if it's for the best? Okay, so as I understand your question, you're asking me about utilitarian ethics, because this is uh, Scientology's system of ethics is based on this concept from utilitarian philosophy, ethics philosophy, as I understand it, or at least it has roots in it, of greatest good for greatest number. If you, you know, what uh, it's, it's sort of the... 
if y'all remember, uh, you know, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan back in the day, and Mr. Spock, right? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And this is, uh, you know, this is a fairly axiomatic ethics principle for many, many people. And it makes sense in almost every context. So it's a good way to go about thinking about things. But Hubbard, you might have noticed, doesn't actually say greatest good for greatest, num- greatest number of people. He says greatest good for greatest number of dynamics. And he introduces a little twist there. Because how can you possibly know or even begin to calculate what the greatest good for the eighth dynamic is? In Scientology, if we break down the dynamics, you have dynamics one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight is God. Eight is the infinity. Seven is spirits, all spiritual entities anywhere, everywhere throughout the entire multiverse. If there is a multiverse, right? Let's say universe. All the spirits that exist in this entire universe. What's the greatest good for them? How could you even begin to comprehend a question like that? Much less ask, answer it with any degree of cert- certainty or knowledge even. You, you, how would you even begin to clue in on that, right? You, all you can do is make assumptions based on your Scientology dogma. Oh, well, it's automatically the greatest good for God. It's automatically the greatest good for spirits. Or the sixth dynamic, matter, energy, space, and time, messed, the physical world. What is the greatest good for the universe <laughs> as, a, as a physical entity, right? Hubbard takes this utilitarian concept of greatest good and he puts it into a paradigm which no one could possibly even begin to understand much less make decisions with you know i've never really described it this way before because i'm sitting here thinking about it right now going yeah this is this is the most ridiculous paradigm if you will or model or way of thinking about ethics ever right because you can use it to endlessly manipulate anyone at any time if you buy into the concept of ot and and, and operating thetans and you look at spirits through the lens of this graduated scale of there's an ot at the top and and a degraded body thetan and dead being hiding off being a rock somewhere at the bottom how you know well how many are at the bottom and how many are ot how many are there? How do we calculate this? How do we even begin to get in touch with them? Like, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously, this all breaks down immediately once you start thinking about it the way I'm talking about. Um, so it would be, um, so it's not the right way to look at things <laughs> to answer your question, right? It's not. It's not the right way to look at things at all as far as Scientology goes. And you, and you specified here that point of view. Um, you know, in terms of in terms of the more general, I don't know. Maybe you, you know, maybe in case you meant this, um, you know, is is my view that, or is it is there a generalized view that you know that the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one? Yeah, there is, and that, and that's actually a fairly sensible calculation, uh, often, but not always, not always, right? And if anything, if anything, really makes me love. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, it is showing the exception to that rule in such a dramatic, wonderful, entertaining way, right? But there is a philosophical message there and an ethical message, right? Which is sometimes you got to tell the group to fuck off. 
You know, sometimes the individual is more important. But it's always the context, isn't it, right? The group can be wrong. The majority can be wrong. And when we talk about things like propaganda and mass indoctrination and even concepts like mass hysteria or contagion of hysteria and mob mentalities and things like that, y'all know exactly what we're talking about. Right? We're talking about groups of people that start acting like herds of people. And, uh, and, and, and they make very, very poor decisions in those moments. Right, So it's not always true that, um, that the greatest good uh, is what the majority wants. And that's why we have to use our brains and, uh, in, and think for ourselves always uh, about stuff. Okay, so... I don't know. I hope that answers. I hope that was along the line of what you were looking for. I, I, I you know, yeah. Okay, good. Let's carry on. Uh, and yes, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this one, LeFou Kitchen. All right, so this is a cheeky question, but your rage quit Reddit again, eh? I did. I absolutely did, and I'm totally going to own it. Um, thought this might come up today, so I was, you know, so I was sort of thinking about this a lot. Um, I'm not great on social media. I have acknowledged that, you know, through comments and hints over the years. Uh, you know, I have a I have a temper and I have triggers and they can be pushed and I get upset about things. And I also have uh, sometimes impulsively said things that I wish I hadn't, right? And, um, and you go, okay, well, you know, use the delete button. And then sometimes people don't let you use the delete button and you're like, ah. And so that's kind of what happened. And so yesterday I decided, okay, I got to get the hell off Reddit. And so I did. And because uh, that's, and I didn't do it so much as a rage quit towards other people. I want to be, I want to clarify for anybody who saw or, or, you know, had any curiosity about that, that, um, that it was for me. It was, it was, I got to stop doing this to myself. It wasn't, oh, you evil, horrible, awful people. I, I, I have enough self-awareness to realize it's me. The problem is me when it comes to social media and I it's just not a medium I do well at Facebook has been a lot tamer and chiller and calmer for a couple years now because I've been using it in a different way than I used to and um and I kind of thought I could go to Reddit and vent a little bit and that was just a miscalculation on my part I shouldn't be doing that there's no reason for me to so um so I just thought yeah okay I I just need to stop doing this for my own sake and for, you know, the sake of, of other people as well, because I'm entering in confusion and making things worse. And when people tell you you're making things worse and you're trying to make things better, you come to a point where you realize, oh, shit, I actually am making things worse. I need to stop doing this. Uh, so, so that's what I did. Okay, and that's what that was about. And so you won't find me on Reddit anymore, and that's fine. Believe me, that's a good thing for me. Um, so happy to answer any other questions about that, by the way, but just because I, I really am trying to be in my public life here with y'all um, as much of an open book as I know how to be. And, and that's on and, and that's everywhere I've ever been, but on social media and, and on video here, et cetera. Um, but, you know, I'm a human being just like everybody else, and I got the full range of emotions and triggers and everything else, and I screw up, and I'm telling you, I screw up. I did. So that's, uh, that's what happened. <laughs> okay. Anyway, thanks for letting me, uh, 
uh, air that. <laughs> okay, let's see what we got here. Oh, Jew Martins. Okay, have you watched the Twin Flames doc? If yes, what did you think of it? I have not. Um, everybody's asking me about this. And I don't have access to Netflix anymore. They did the password crackdown thing. And so um, we were sharing the Netflix logon with, uh, with the family. And uh, hey, guess what? They don't want you doing that anymore, right? And so, uh, so I didn't do that anymore. And so I have to otherwise acquire this documentary because I really do want to watch it because I keep being told how great it is. So I will get to it. And, uh, and, and maybe I'll watch that o- over my break time uh we'll see we'll see what what happens with that okay um wish i could offer more opinion about it it's actually a little silly that i haven't watched it but like i said i haven't had access to it okay x scion is scientology racist any examples um l ron hubbard was racist uh there's zero question about that uh he spoke derogatorily about many different uh racial minorities over the years uh, had lots of clever words and, and descriptions for them, and even applied Scientology templates to it, like talking about how uh, different geographical areas had different case manifestations, meaning that they dramatized their case, their, their, their bullshit, their trauma, uh, their collected engrams and all that crap, right, um, differently that different areas had different issues, right? And that, for example, I think he said of South Africans that they couldn't learn, wouldn't learn, were sort of, uh, um, uh, what did he say about that? There was definitely learning issues. Did he say they were a surfact case? He might have. He might have said that. He definitely said that about Australians. He said Australians straight up, not, you know, not that Australians are a racial minority, but because he wasn't talking about the... Um, the native Australians, he was talking about Australians, like, period, just the Australians he, he dealt with. He said they were surfat cases, right? They were always having to be right. A service facsimile in Scientology is the concept that you are right and others are wrong, and you are right because they're wrong. And a service facsimile is something you also use in Scientology as a mental mechanism to um, give yourself disabilities, make yourself sick, make yourself have accidents, give yourself issues in order to gain sympathy and support from other people around you. Um, Hubbard was classically uh, this way in his own personal life all the time, and he laid that, he projected it on other people, and he called it a service facsimile. And he said the Australian case is a surfat case. This is where they live. They're always about making other people wrong and being right. And, uh, and he would apply that kind of template to groups of people, right? Um, I just can't remember. Um, oh, responsibility. It was irresponsible. South Africans were irresponsible. There were responsibility cases um, because they could steal from you and not think twice about it, right? It wasn't stealing to them. Uh, it, would be a, it would be an overt to them to not steal from you. So you could have areas where the moral codes were completely backwards. And if you were going to do a confessional or a sec check on a person who was in that region, then you'd have to kind of think in a backwards kind of way, you know, about how to get their crimes uh, off their chest, right? Because they didn't think of them as crimes and this kind of thing. And I'm, I'm giving this all to you and explaining this all to you as an example of Hubbard's racism, 
right? Is here he's taking this entire group of people. He wasn't talking about white South Africans. He was talking about black South Africans. And he said, as a class of people, these people have their morality completely backwards. And they are uh, basically walking, talking race of group of criminals. All of them. And you just go, what? That's Hubbard. So that would absolutely be, um, be an example of that. Um, if that satisfies, I hope it does. Uh, okay, let's carry on here. Great questions today, guys. Um, Nerman, how much money was raised at the recent fundraiser event in England? I have no idea, Nerman. I'm sorry. I have no clue what the answer to that question is. <laughs> uh, moving right along. <laughs> uh, Joe, I will totally do this. Thank you for asking. Uh, say, Chris, that's a very nice looking book on the desk next to you there. Tell us about it. Why, yes, this book right here, you mean, Joe? This is my book, Scientology. It is Enu. And if you are looking for the perfect Christmas gift for somebody who wants to understand or know about Scientology, this will be the book for you. I have two books that I always that I always try to uh, recommend to people if you really want to understand Scientology, like for real. And that would be John Atak's A Piece of Blue Sky and this book right here. And as far as I'm concerned, if you read those two books, you got it. Now, the rest of the books are great. I'm not in any way, you know, invalidating or, or suggesting not to read anybody else's books or memoirs on the topic because there's a lot of good stuff out there. And memoirs are great. Uh, they give you first-person, you know, first-person accounts of what happened to people individually and, and have at it. But if you really want to get the structure and background and understanding of Scientology and what it is, and also a little bit on cult recovery, because there's three chapters in here on that too. This is the book for you. All right, and there's my plug for the week. Thanks for letting me insert that commercial here, Joe. Awesome. Uh, all right. Young Matador, is alcohol generally allowed when Church of Scientology shoots audience shows like the New Year's event, or do they all have to behave and listen to a DM stem winder for three hours with not even a glass of champagne? You know, that's a good question, young matador. And the answer is no, there is no alcohol served at Scientology events, unless for the New Year's toast, they would bring out some champagne and uh, or cider. I think it was apple cider uh, champagne, if I remember right. I don't remember... I don't remember there being alcohol served at public events. Maybe there was an open bar of some kind for the after-event activities. Maybe amongst the whales or something, I could have seen something like that. But I'm trying to re- what I'm remember what I'm my memory is kind of is kind of like okay after event. You know, during the event, never, 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 never. I can definitely say that. Not once did I ever see anybody drinking any alcohol at a Scientology event during the event. Uh, Maybe if they brought their own flask or something, but that's, you know, because you could smell it. And I never smelled alcohol at an event. That's actually the memory that's that's kind of triggering off right now is no, there's no alcohol. Um so the only thing I can think of that actually that, that I think is real, uh, maybe an answer to the question is maybe at New Year's there was some champagne given out for the toast at the end of the event. But, um, but generally, no, it is generally not allowed uh, for all kinds of reasons, of course, 
uh, mostly being that nobody wants anybody falling asleep in a drunken stupor listening to Miscavige. God, how embarrassing would that be? Um, and it's not that Scientologists eschew alcohol or that they don't have alcohol-driven events. I mean, even in the Sea Org, we had the beer and cheese party. But it's um, but not at formal Scientology events. Uh, nah, I never saw that. Okay, carrying on here. Um, oh, here's a great one. Xion, what OT superpower would you choose if you were given the ability to develop one? Ah. Uh. I've often thought about telekinesis, um, you know, the ability to move things with your mind, right? Be able to use the force, right? Draw, you know, I can put out my hand and, you know, and something would come, come flying into it, right? Ooh, uh, you know, critical thinking cards, right? Um, I've always loved that, that ability, but it's not, it's not a super practical ability unless you're like a car mechanic who needs to lift cars up or something, right? It's like... Okay, I can I can throw things around. I would not want to be able to read other people's minds. I think that would drive me absolutely insane because it's already bad enough reading my own mind. So I don't think I want telepathy. Um, hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Wow, that's, a, that's an interesting question. What kind of OT power would I like? Or develop? You know, if there was a power or ability to not... How do I put this? How do I put this? If I could without forcefully or destructively manipulating another person's thoughts, right? I don't mean going in and manipulating a person's thinking so that they are, you know, so that I am determining what they think or, or what, they, what their opinions are. I don't want that power because that's just straight up, you know, nefarious mind control. But if I could somehow... Get a person I'm talking or speaking with, or if there was some method of of getting a, an individual to see a different perspective than what they're seeing right now, right? You know that perspective thing, how you have those like, oh, I didn't think about it that way. And it changes everything kind of sometimes significantly, sometimes not so much so. But sometimes you have those like moments of like, oh my God. And it's a total perspective shift. It's not that you've, um, yeah, it's just a new thing for you. It's not taking things away from you or it's not, you know, twisting up your thinking. It's just, hey, here's another way of thinking about this, you know? And then they could choose. They could, they could make up their own mind about what they want to do with that awareness or that information or that new perspective. But at least they'd have it. And I know they have it, right? It's not like, I don't see that that way. No, now you do. <laughs> so what do you think, right? Something like that. Some kind of little, you know, just a little perspective shift. Not forcing them, again, not forcing them to now adopt that new perspective, 
But you know how frustrating it can be when you're trying and trying and trying to get somebody to get where you're coming from and they just won't (laughs) or can't and how incredibly difficult that can be to try to, you know, empathize or, or have that compassion. Something like that, you know, something like that comes to mind. God, I hope that doesn't, I hope that's not a horrible thing. I don't think it is. I was, I was, anyway, that's what I thought of. <laughs> okay. Um, you might tell I have disagreements on my mind these days. Um, okay, ex Cyan. How would you feel if your niece said she was going to look into Scientology and felt strongly about checking it out? Well, I'd feel awful about that, of course, because I know what Scientology is all the way down to its evil, rotten little core, right? So I'd feel very bad about that. And I would take action to try to give her information that might help her decide that maybe that's not the best thing for her to be doing. But at the end of the day, it's her. It's her decision. It's on her. And um, she can only make the decisions that she can make based on the information that she has. And the decisions only be as good as the validity of those inf- of those of that information, but even with, even with all the information, people will still want to do what they want to do. Example, recently, here in town, in Denver, there was a uh, group meeting that was a culty group that I was aware of, and I had, I'd had a, a, just a little bit of awareness of it, and I, somebody called me, and they were like, should I go to this meeting? It looks like it's a little sketchy. And I'm not sure if this, is a, if, if this is an upfront group or not. What is your opinion of this? And, of course, I was very happy that somebody asked me that. And I looked into the group, and I, and, or we were having the conversation about it. And I said, oh, yeah, no, this group has a lot of red flags. And, um, and it's probably not something that you're going to want to be involved with because this is, a, this is an openly manipulative and deceptive group. And they're not going to tell you the truth about what they're doing. And they're going to try to get you to feel amazing and, you know, induce a, an awe, euphoria experience and get you all hyped up on how great this new method is that they have. By the way, the name of this group is Radical Honesty, and it is absolutely a culty group. And, um, and they were doing a local meetup here in Denver. And so I told this guy, hey, man, I really, really, really recommend you not go to this thing. Like, I just don't think it's going to be a good experience for you. And, um, you know, and no good is going to come out of going to, you know, an introductory cult meeting in the same way no good is going to come out of going down to the church of Scientology and taking a personality test. You can do it, but it's not like you're going to get the truth about Scientology and and there is a danger that they will trigger, you know, something within you that's going to go, oh, my God, this is actually something I really need. It happens. It happens. And so, you know, so we would encourage, you know, we being, you know, cult professionals or whatever, would encourage people not to go do that. Well, of course, this individual I was talking to was like, no, I'm going to go. And I was like, well, okay, I really don't think you should. And he was like, well, I'm going to. And I was like, all right, man, go. You knock yourself out. In fact, since you're going, <laughs> tell me what happened, right? And I got, a whole, I got a whole rundown on it. But you can't, you know, you can only do so much, I think, is the point of my little story here, right? You can only, even when you know as much as I do or, or professionals, you know, or, or academics or whatever, know about this stuff and try to communicate about it, try to warn people about it. At the end of the day, people are going to do what they're going to do. And, you know, you got to give them that freedom to do it. 
right? You can't lock them up. You can't chain them down. You can't tie them down. You can't, you know, tell them, uh, I'm not going to be your friend anymore if you go do that. You know, that would be silly and stupid. Uh, so I didn't do any of those things. I just said, okay, well, you know, let me know how it goes and, and, and tell me all about it. And he did. And he came back with, yeah, it was culty as hell. <laughs> Everything you said, right? So I was like, yep, yeah, that's how it was. And he didn't get wrangled into it. And he kind of laughed at it. And we all had a laugh. And it was all good. So, uh, and I'm, I'm grossly summarizing the whole story there. But that was basically kind of the rundown on it. So, I'd have to act with my niece the same way, right? You got to give people the freedom to go make the mistakes that they need to make for themselves so that they can see and learn for themselves you know, uh, okay, right? At least uh, now, of course, if you're talking about somebody, you know, telling you they want to go try heroin, I might be a little more, you know, active and energetic in my, you know, uh, discouragement <laughs> because that stuff can addict you in one go. I mean, you know, you don't you don't want to be messing around with, with hard drugs. So, um and so can Scientology, though, which is why, you know, uh, it can be frustrating, right? But um, anyway, but that's, that's kind of my general answer to the question, I guess. Uh, thanks for asking. It's, it's a good question. Thanks for, thanks for asking that. Okay. Henny. Henny. Henny in the house. The guns that were not turned in by Danny Masterson could give him more time. Do you think the cult has them stored in their arsenal? No, I don't. Uh, Henny, I think that this is basically a matter of uh, what Tony and I were going over was that um, he probably sold them or got rid of them or gave them to somebody or something, and they just don't have the records of it, and they need to get those accounted for. And so we will know a lot more in the next hearing where you know they try to account for or show invoices or receipts for where all the guns went because every one of them went somewhere or they were destroyed, and that's another – there's paperwork for that too. Uh, so we'll see what happens, but I don't in any way think that the Church of Scientology has Danny Masterson's guns, and I don't think that there is um, any evidence that we've seen of some kind of a plot involving those guns and, say, the Masterson victims, right? I, I, it's all, anything's possible in the world of all possibilities, but you know, we would need evidence or some kind of, uh, of something, some indication that there is something nefarious happening here. And right now, all we have is unaccounted for weapons that, like I said, are probably just sold or something, you know. I could be wrong. It's, there's good reason to be concerned. They do need to be accounted for. I'm not trying to poo-poo it. I'm not trying to say there's no reason that, that for, for no concern. But I don't think it's a red alert situation, right? Not yet. Um, let's see what happens. Okay, SP Chef, uh, sorry, SP Chef. When I left the SO, I was declared a PTS type 3 and had to do a PAB 6. But it has been over 10 years, and I can't really remember what that was exactly. Do you mind explaining that? <laughs> sure. Okay, PAB 6, a PAB 6 handling is uh, a PAB is a professional auditor bulletin. Before L. Ron Hubbard came up with the idea of uh, red on white, red ink on white paper uh, with the most common form of issue in Scientology, which is called the HCO bulletin, 
the Hubbard Communications Office bulletin, bulletins that were issued through L. Ron Hubbard's office. Before that, there were professional auditor bulletins, and these were black ink on white paper, and these were uh, distributed by, they were, they were written by Ron, mimeographed, and mailed out to the mailing list of all of the professional auditors that they had uh, created through Dianetics and Scientology classwork in the 1950s. And this was all through the early and mid-1950s where the PABs really kind of thrived. They continued to be written, I think, through into the 60s a little bit, if I remember right, but the bulletins kind of took it over as an issue type. Now, that's the administrative side of it. The professional auditor bulletins contained technology developed by L. Ron Hubbard, latest research developments, latest techniques and methods. And um, Benson is sitting here growling at me right now. Benson, I need you to calm down, buddy. Okay, I'm doing my show. Okay, there we go. We'll have you go outside afterwards, okay? I know, I know. You're all anxious right now. You're just going to have to wait, buddy, okay? All right, just hang, just hang tight. All right, sorry about that. So they contained all these new releases and new tech and new information. Well, guess what L. Ron Hubbard had to solve in the mid-1950s? He had to solve the problem. In fact, I think it was 1954, PAB 6, maybe 53. I mean, it was kind of early, um, early on. And the problem that needed to be solved was pre-clears would go in session and they would go a little nuts. Right? They'd get a little what was called over-restimulated. They would get into these states of not good places. Benson, stop it. It's okay, buddy. Okay, just need you to just calm down for a little bit, all right? All right, buddy. Good boy. Come on. Good boy. All right. I got to do my show. Yeah. Might as well get a little Benson cam while you're at it. <laughs> See? You're live right now on YouTube. You're a YouTube phenomenon right now. Yeah. Oh. Okay. All right. There you go. All right. Sorry, guys. Okay. Over-restimulated PCs, right? People getting Dynetics auditing and not in a good head space, right? Brr, can't operate well. Uh, even, you know, not catatonic, but not good, not in a good place. L. Ron Hubbard developed this series of steps called, uh, which are referred to as a PAB-6 handling. Um, take a walk. Uh, get outside. If you can't walk, crawl. If you can't crawl, then, you know, look around at things, try to touch things. Um, I think there was a vitamin step in PAB-6. I, I, I don't have it right here to look up right now. Maybe I could um, pop it up at some point uh, in a future show, and we could go over it, actually. But uh, this is all just off the top of my head. I haven't looked at this issue in many, many years. But there was, uh, I think there was get some vitamins, B-complex, and some other, uh, maybe a guck bomb or some kind of, which was a collection of, of vitamins, and minerals and stuff that Hubbard suggested would uh, ease the mind or keep the bank at bay. You know, B-complex was supposed to be important for that. I remember I used to take that a lot in Scientology as well as vitamin C, D, A, um, E. Uh, Hubbard talked about these vitamins often. And um, let's see, what else? It was basically the sort of steps that were trying to, like, 
calm a person down and and get them back into a sort of chill regular headspace right like oh we did too much let's pull way back and this became a handling that would be used for people who were considered psychotic or have had a psychotic episode or are uh, borderline on the way to that sort of thing, right? That would be the sort of implication of it is somebody's a little too on edge and here's what we're going to do to deal with that. And those are, though I don't, I'm not remembering all the basic steps. I think there was some, like I said, exercise or get a walk or get out there. Hubbard told a story. And he told this story a few times in Scientology, and I don't think that this is a true story. I think this is total bullshit. But Hubbard told a story that it that and claimed it was an old Indian American Native Indian Amer- sorry Native American uh, story that there was a woman who like a like a woman who went crazy, just went kind of nuts one day. And she went off on this walk, and she just walked and walked and walked and walked, like days and days and weeks maybe, and then came back. They went out, and she came back. And when she came back, she was fine. It was all good, right? She just needed a lot of space and to get away and sort out her body phaetons or something. And that was a cure for this kind of madness that could overtake a person, I suppose, or, or over, as they say in Scientology, again, they use this word a lot, over-restimulation. Um, so that's what I remember from that. I hope that helps a little bit, SP Chef. Uh, and maybe I, I did get your email, by the way, and I will respond to that because I am interested in talking with you more. And maybe we can go over that in more detail if and when we were to talk more. All right. Um, Cool. Let's carry on here. Ex-science. Should Scientology be outlawed? I don't think it should be outlawed or banned. Uh, we tried that already. And we already know what happens. Right? Why repeat the mistakes of the past? Right? Australia tried to ban it. Um, other Germany has certainly gotten pretty hard down on that. Uh, on Scientology and the practice of it, right? And um, it's just generally not a good idea, right? Because ideas are bulletproof, and when you try to suppress or ban or outlaw things, that itself draws attention because of the scarcity principle, right? Inf- if you remember the, the various points of what influences behavior or the things that influence people, scarcity, not having access to a thing, taking it away, making it rare, increases automatically it doesn't even matter what it is no matter i could tell you that 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 i could tell well let me say this i could say to some people you know uh even evil stuff a nazi nazi paraphernalia you know like collector's items that are like from saddam hussein's house or something right like there's a real scarcity on them and and there are a lot of people who'd go oh really maybe i should do something about that. Maybe I should acquire those things because they are so rare, so scarce. And that's what happens when you ban things. It's an automatic response. It has nothing to do with the morality of it. It's just people. 
So, um, so for that reason alone, I say no. But there are other reasons as well, including freedom of thought and, and freedom of religious practice. Uh, people should have the right to do these things. It's just they should be informed that they're destructive and harmful to them. And, uh, and you don't want to do that. Bad thing to do. You're hurting yourself, right? Um, it's probably, excuse me, it's probably not. No, no, I, th- I think it's, yeah, just no. Don't, 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 don't outlaw them. No, I don't think that's the way to go. Okay, cool. Greg catching the live stream for the first time. Excellent. Um, what is your favorite thing about yourself? And what do you wish you could change about yourself? Huh. Okay, good question. Favorite thing about myself? I, I don't know that I how to answer this question without sounding grossly egotistical. <laughs> but I'm going to say the honest answer to the question, which is, that my favorite thing about myself is that I care about people and care about the situations and things as much as I do. I, I like that about myself. I, I like the fact that I care. I think that's important. Um, that's the concept. That, that's, that, that was my flash answer. That was the thing that came to mind right off. So I'm just going to say it. Um, what do you wish you could change about yourself? I wish I... Now that I'm so aware of this, and I I know I've been talking about this a lot, and I'm not going to try to talk about this a lot, okay? Um, It's just kind of still new and fresh for me, and I'm still like kind of getting my head around it on the the whole ADHD thing. I wish I didn't have that. I wish that was not a factor in my life. I'd be, uh, you know, I wouldn't be a different person at my core if I didn't have that condition but there would be challenges in my life that would not be as challenging if I didn't have that condition. So that's the thing that I wish I could change about myself. I, I don't know if that answer, if that's where you were, what you were thinking necessarily in, in asking that. But uh, as far as changing that kind of thing about yourself, but that's what comes to mind because because there's that whole array of things that comes with it, right? The attention dispersion and and the impulse control and the and the emotional stuff and the memory stuff and all that. It's just, ah, oh, I wish I could get rid of that. But can't. You're gonna have to, I'm going to have to learn to live with it and, and manage it and deal with it. And that's what I'm doing. Uh, and, that's, and that's, you know, what we're going to do. Anyway, thanks for asking. Uh, okay. And by the way, if I ever answer any of y'all's questions and they're not really like what you're looking for or, or whatever, just put more questions in. Right? I'll, and ask me to clarify or whatever, and I'm, I'm happy to do that. It's not like, this is my answer, and don't ever ask me about it again. Okay, uh, Greg Gibson. Uh, I meant to ask, do cults in general use hate as a form of control? I always feel like they are similar to hate groups. Yeah, absolutely, they do, Greg. It's called uh, creating an us versus them model or paradigm or, or creating that mindset. Uh, us, we're the good guys. Them, they're the bad guys. And generally, when we're talking about destructive cults, them is the whole world <laughs> and who, everybody who's not part of the cult. So if you're not with us, you're against us. And that is how they will, that's the, that's the kernel of the beginning of 
forming a hate mindset. Because if, if they're not, if, if you can convince people that those people out there who are not us, those others out there, well, to, to, you work on people so that they, um, oh, I think, okay, let me finish answering this and then, um, oh, we're, we're, we're so close to, okay, let me just finish answering this. Um, you keep working on that. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, um, one and done. You gotta, you gotta work on the group and work on the group and give them more and more reasons over time to be more distrustful, uh, more wary, more like, you know, out of touch with and not talking with this, these other people, this other group out there, the, them. Uh, and you start implying or inferring that they are dangerous or that they don't like us or that they don't want us around. They actually wish we weren't here. That's how bad those guys are because we have the truth. We have the way and the light and the knowledge and the ability to improve people and make them better. And the bad guys out there don't want that, do they? No, no, no. So they're bad. We're good. And you keep working that. And you keep working it. Hubbard has this kind of thing littered throughout the materials of Scientology. The JWs have this littered throughout their materials. The Mormons have this littered throughout theirs. Every cult does. And that's how the hate begins. That's how it's generated. That's how, the, that's how they build it. Um, so there you go. Okay, let me do... Let me, I, I, there's more questions to answer here, and I want to answer them. Um, I'm here home alone right now. Mel is out, and uh, I can hear Benson whining, and I know he wants to go outside. It will take me 10 seconds, so let me do this really fast. And uh, I don't even have a Be Right Back screen on this one. So, um, oh, I think I have, well, no, I'm not going to use that one. I'll be right back. I've never done this before, but let me go do this. I'll be right back. And I'm back. I think that was 10 seconds. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you for your patience with me on this. Um, let's see. Debbie M. I have been listening to the On Being podcast. It's the first one I've heard being sponsored by a foundation. Have you looked into grants to help support your work? Oh, that was a great question, Debbie. I have not. Um, I guess I've always been a little overwhelmed by the paperwork and the, and the bureaucracy of it. Um, and I kind of stop myself before I even start, if I'm really being honest. Um, but so I have not. I've, I've considered, I've been aware conceptually, like I understand that there are grants and that people do that and that, be, and that there is money available from that. But I've never really gone further into, okay, well, good. So how do I get some of that money or what do I, what do I need to do? It's so overwhelming to me as, a, as an individual person trying to figure that out when I literally know nothing about it. Uh, people have suggested it to me in the past, and it's just kind of been one of those, yeah, that'd be nice, you know, but I just don't know how to do it. And, um, 
and I don't want to take the time to learn, you know, because it's, it's hours and hours and hours of work. And I, and I just don't even know what I'm doing, you know? So I think that's kind of what stopped it more than anything else. Uh, you know, I, yeah, <laughs> really not making myself look very good today. I don't think that this is the truth. <laughs> um, I should, I absolutely should, but I just, yeah. Okay. All right. X Cyan. Another good question. You got some good ones today. Um, is tribalism or looking out for others like you innately good, bad, or neutral? Um, hmm. Let's see. Okay. My answer, my, 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 my first thought on this is that it's an innately good thing. And good, of course, is subjective, right? It's a completely, uh, it's a judgment, it's an opinion uh, that, that we make based on the context of things. And I think overall, in the long term, if we look at our ability or life's ability to survive in tribes, and this goes beyond human beings, way beyond human beings, um, it's clearly a survival mechanism. It's clearly something that will enable the survival of more individuals more easily than if everybody's in this anarchistic sort of let's every man for himself mode. We know that breaks down very quickly and people die off very quickly. Whereas if they work together and they share resources and they share abilities and they share skill sets, they get along better and, and everybody survives better as a result of that cooperation. And that's where tribalism, as far as I can tell, evolutionarily comes from. And this, again, precedes human beings by eons. Uh, so it's not just a human thing. It's a, it's a life thing. Um, groups survive better than individuals. Uh, and groups facilitate the survival of each individual in the group, you know, to the degree that they're, that they're doing that kind of thing. So I think from that perspective, it's a positive evolutionary development that has uh, that we are just part and parcel of. We, we can't not be that. Uh, it's built into us, in other words. And so tribalism is not a choice for us. And that's why it's an emotional need. Community, the very sense of, of our tribe, the very the security and the feelings of emotional um, satisfaction and security. There really isn't a better word for it. It's, it, it you know, you feel secure. You feel safe. Uh, because you're surrounded by people who have your back and you have theirs. And, and you know that, right? That's the family unit. That's the, that's the job. That's the club you're part of. That's the groups you're part of. And, and that solidarity and it gives power to us. So, so, there's, so, so I think from that perspective, it's absolutely a good thing. Um, you know, it's when we decide that we that our group is better than all the other groups, our tribe's better than all the other tribes. We're fighting for resources and things like that is what it comes down to. Or we perceive that that's what we're doing. Excuse me. I mean, damn, the whole, you know, the whole Israeli-Palestine conflict is tribal. It's a tribe, tribe versus tribe, right? And we're going to fight over this land. We're going to fight over these resources because only one of us gets to, gets to be the last man standing, right? Or last tribe standing. And that kind of stuff is where it gets evil, and that's where it gets bad, and that's where people die. And, and it's not so good for the groups involved because the group solidarity is leading to massive deaths in those groups because uh, they're fighting. They're at war. Uh, every war is like this. 
And I, and I hate that. I hate that. I hate that whole thing. Um, but that, the fact that groups do that, it doesn't make groups evil. Um, you know, there are only so many resources at the end of the day, but you know, our, we've evolved to the point where we can figure out how to share resources and, and, and deal with problems like that without having to get, you know, into the, into the destructive war-like actions. And uh, at least it seems to me we could, we could navigate our way through those things if we, if we used our, our frontal lobes a little bit better. But um, so, you know, anyway, it's complicated, obviously. But that's my answer to the question. Okay, good. <laughs> Basically good. All right, Mitzi Francis, what do Scientologists think should happen with people born with significant disabilities like cerebral palsy and autism? Do they support government? Okay, um, Mitzi, basically Scientologists, and this is really harsh. This is harsh. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be as blunt as I know how to be about how Scientologists really are about this because I have heard this. I heard other Scientologists say this. I thought this when I was a Scientologist, going to be frank. Um because we believed that every single person that you see is actually an immortal spiritual being, a, a ghost, a spirit, uh, a thetan, and that that is the actual life unit that matters, not the body. Body doesn't matter. Whether you have Schwarzenegger's body or whether you have Stephen Hawking's body, doesn't matter. Your body just doesn't matter. You've had billions of them. Bodies are a dime a dozen. In the world of Scientology, this is the point of view. Bodies don't matter. So, if you have a body that prevents you from being able to do Scientology auditing, then your body is a hindrance to you. It is not helping you. And therefore, we're just counting the seconds until that thing kicks it and you can go get another body that is able to receive auditing. And so the view is, what do Scientologists think should happen with people born with significant disabilities? They should just move on, right? Now, they shouldn't be killed. Well, I'm, not, I'm not implying that. That's not the statement, right? It's not, let's go murder them. It's, boy, that really sucks, Guess they're going to have to wait it out and go get another body. How unfortunate for them. And that's about as far as they think about it, to be honest, right? Uh, yeah, it's kind of cruel. It's a cruel, callous attitude. Very, very much is. Um, I don't even know where to begin, Mitzi, with answering, do they support government? Um, yes, they do, but they want a Scientology government. It's a long, it, it, there's a lot to that answer. Um so I'll try to just say, I, I'm sorry, I don't mean to leave you hanging on that. It's just, you know, yeah, they support government. They're not anarchists. Uh, Scientologists do appreciate order and structure and government forms. Uh, Hubbard claimed that a benign dictatorship was the best form of government that exists. Of course he would say that. And, of, of course, Hubbard was always the benign dictator. So, um, okay, let's carry on here. Oh, boy, so many questions. All right, let me see if I can go into a bit of a lightning round here and uh, see if we can't blow through some of these so I'm not leaving you guys hanging 
uh, before we wrap up here. Joe DiCeppo, have you seen the documentary about the Love Has One cult or heard of that group? Fascinating example of a social media era cult. Um, yes, I agree. Let me just check and see if I'm... Yeah, Amy Carlson's group. Yeah, not as familiar with it as I probably should be again. Um, but I've heard of this one for sure. And, um, but I haven't seen the documentary yet. Uh, also, again, I think for the same reason, I don't have that Netflix account anymore. That, so I, I didn't realize how many of the, ne- of the cult documentaries are on Netflix until I couldn't get on Netflix anymore. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Okay, Vernon, uh, have Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and preach to you about the Bible? They tried to last week. Uh, I don't get into it with them. I, I don't. I don't. There's no reason to. Uh, I'm not going to deconvert them in one go at my door. That's not what they're there for. They're, they're not. They're not there to listen. They're there to preach. And in that context, uh, a deconversion, you know, a conversation isn't going to happen. So I'm not even going to try it, right? It's a waste of my time and theirs. Uh, but yes, they have come to my door. Well, only that once, and it was only last week. Uh, really, out of nowhere. So kind of funny that they came through our neighborhood. Um, okay, what is this LA event that the church is hosting in December? Any ideas, asks young Matador. Um, I think it's the New Year's event. I mean, they're having a, every year, every New Year's, for many, many, many years, it was the tradition in Los Angeles that David Miscavige would come out to L.A. and they would have 5,000 Scientologists show up at the Shrine Auditorium to celebrate New Year's. And they would generally record the event a week or so before New Year's. And they even did a countdown at the end for the video and all that. And it was the Scientology New Year's celebration. And then they would show that event, uh, telecast it all to all the orgs on New Year's Eve. Um, or... They, uh, yeah, no, that was just generally about how they would go about doing it. Um, Or they would do it on New Year's Eve now at the shrine. I'm not really sure what they're going to do now. But but the New Year's event, having an event for Scientology around New Year's, pretty normal routine kind of thing. And it was a sort of of end-of-the-year wrap-up event. And let's talk about all the wins and gains we had in Scientology and all the expansion that was created and all that kind of stuff. And around that central evening event, you could sometimes have a weekend of activities connected with that. And they will do seminars and workshops for Scientologists, and they'll try to have them come to Pack Base, the big blue buildings. And they'll have kid events, and they'll, you know, jumpy castles and stuff like that for the kids while they try to do these FSM workshops and dissemination seminars and, and basically try to create situations where they can get money from people, right? Extract money from people or teach them how to go extract money from other people. That's what those workshops and seminars are all about is not, it's not personal improvement seminars. It's seminars on how to talk about Scientology to your friends and family. It's seminars and workshops about all of the uh, front groups of Scientology. What is the, uh, uh, you know, the um, Association for Better Living and Education doing this year to get study tech out into the world? Or what is Narconon doing and how can you help with that? Or do you want to be a volunteer for Narconon or for ABLE or for Applied Scholastics or, or, or? 
And that, that's what these sort of seminars and workshops are all about. So as far as I know, that's, um, that's, what, I'm, that's what I'm aware of with that. Okay. Um, okay, Vernon, Chris, are you friends with Mark and Claire Headley? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that we are friends. I, I haven't spoken with them in a, in a while. Um, I don't, they're not, we're not enemies. Uh, you know, I'm not against them or anything. Um, but we, you know, we're not generally hanging out or, or, or doing social stuff together. Um, I'm, I'm very aware of, of the work that they do and support the Aftermath Foundation. I do support the Aftermath Foundation and the work that it does. And, um, and so that's how I'm kind of, you know, connected with them. Uh, okay, Clearwater, Erie, PA. Since Alex is in the chat, forgive me, Chris, since he was also interviewed by Tony, I kind of consider you all affiliated. And I rewatched the Mayor of Grinstead video. Alex, since the mayor is claiming he's only giving his constituents equal time, have you asked the other organization in East Grinstead how much time he is giving them? Okay, maybe Alex will respond to that in chats. Maybe he already has. Uh, moving right along. Joe DiCeppo, what are your thoughts on the rituals slash magical thinking that some musicians and sports people use for good luck? At what point does it tip over into something more? I'll tell you the point where I think, I'll tell you the exact point where I think it tips over into something more is when that individual, musician, um, sports person, whoever, doesn't get the expected result from their little magical incantation or good luck charm and is disappointed that it didn't work. (laughs) And I say that laughingly, but I mean it. Like, if they're committed to it to the point that it's a it's a symbolic gesture. It's a good luck charm. It's a, okay, you know, uh, you know, throw the salt over the shoulder, whatever, whatever the, the the thing is they're doing. Rub the little rabbit foot. Fine, you know, okay, you know, a little gesture of of luck or a little token of 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 respect to the gods or whatever, right? But if if it doesn't happen, and then they're sitting there wondering. Did I not do it right? Did I not rub the foot the wrong way? Did I should I have put the magnet over here instead of over here? You know the little wooey pseudoscience stuff people get up to. Um, you know it's when they actually become so invested that they are upset it didn't work, right? That they actually thought, hey, you know, like that's supposed to really change things in the real world in a significant way, and it didn't. That would be the beginning of the path of. You know, no, man, you, you, you are too much into this. You got to pull back. <laughs> that little rabbit's foot was never going to be a factor in whether you were going to win or lose or put on a good concert or have your, you know, have your skills all in alignment that night. You know, you can't, you can't lay that stuff on external factors with any real, you know, belief. I mean, when you do that, you're handing over your own agency to, a thing or a or a ritual or something else outside of yourself and and that's not good that's not good for you so if you really if you're it's so invested i think that if it's you know ah oh, it's a big letdown anyway i don't know i i hope that i hope that makes sense um Yes. Okay. Uh, Vernon, let's, let's talk about this. I'm a little concerned about your loss of subscribers from 47.7 to 47.3. What happened? Yeah. Thanks for noticing Vernon. Um, 
this whole debacle happened. That's what happened. Um, and I'm, you know, sort of my channel, sort of collateral damage on that. And, uh, and I think you guys know what I'm talking about. It's the aftermath debacle. And uh, it has created a tremendous amount of tumult uh, in the community here. And there's a, there are people who I have seen commenting in some places or in some quarters who really seem to think I have done Aaron or other people a real wrong or a real bad or I'm just a bad person or something. And, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of past the point now where I am craving everybody liking me. I really, really was hung up on that for a real long time. And I, you know, you get to a point where you realize intellectually, you, we all realize lots of things intellectually. <laughs> it doesn't mean we realize them deep down feelings wise and that we're, and that, that really we're okay with it. Uh, you know, it's a kind of a multi-stage <laughs> process of acceptance, right? And, um, and yet it is what it is, right? Not everybody's going to like you. And sometimes people will misunderstand you. And sometimes even when you make efforts to try to be understood, you mess it up or they just don't want to understand you. You know, I have had situations where I have been on social media where I have tried to deal with or confront somebody who is talking crap about me right there on the feed, right? Whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. I'm like, hey, I'm right here. You're saying this stuff about me. Let's talk. Right, like, like, let's clarify this. No, I don't want to hear from you. I already know what you think. I already know you're a scumbag. Fuck off, right? That's the response I would get. And I was like, okay, well, I guess there's nothing I can really do about that then. And it's and it's step by step. Gradually, you just realize you're just not going to be understood, or you are understood, and people just disagree. They just they get it, and they go, nope, that's not how I see things. Fine. You got to realize, I have to, I had to come to realize, I got to deal with that. I got to roll with that. I got to be okay with that. Because chasing that approval or chasing, you know, people, um, you know, who are just determined to not like you for whatever reason or not want to listen to you or not want to accept your information or not think that you're somebody who has credible information in the first place, that's the world. And, um, and it's been a, it's been a real object lesson learning that. And so the, um, so the fallout of that is that you lose people and the fallout of, of, you know, uh, conflicts like what's happening right now is everybody gets hurt. Uh, and so that's, what's been happening to my channel. And some of the frustration that you have seen me express, um, has come from that. It has been frustrating. Um, feel like you're not really doing anything wrong, but people think you are and you go, well, all right, I got to roll with that. Um, so all I can do and all I'm going to continue to do is the work that I know how to do and, uh, and roll with it anyway. Right. And so subscriber count goes down, subscriber count goes up. You know, this is why I was saying a couple of weeks ago about the numbers thing, right? That was part of coming to, a, uh, an acceptance of this is realizing I'm not going to reach everybody anyway. I'm never going to. So why fret over all the people I'm not reaching? Why not focus on the ones I am and help them as best I know how and just pour the coals on that? And if, I, and if I'm going to lose people in the process who are just determined to think that I'm you know, the, the, the second coming of the biggest asshole in the world, I can't do anything about that. You know, All I can do is the best job I know how to do here, and that's what I'm doing. So... Thanks for bringing that up, Vern. And um, no, seriously, thank you for bringing that up so I could uh, address that. Um, okay, Henny, do you think 
<laughs> do you think the legal system will ever recover the elders who have disappeared or do they even care? Henny, I'm sorry. I'm going to need a little more context on that question. I'm not sure which elders you're referring to. I don't want to assume anything here. Can you clarify that question for me? Uh, I'll, I'll just, just well, maybe we'll get to that as we go down these questions. Um, OBG Foster, what do you say when Christians offer to pray for you? I say thank you. That's what I say. Um, I appreciate people's attempts or desire or willingness to try to assist me as they see assistance, and I thank them for it. Uh, I, I don't need to get into a, you know, okay, let's deconvert you now because you're offering to pray for me, right? Let's argue about it. Why do that? Um, okay, good. Chris Wood, did you, through, did you go through the purification rundown? If so, what was your experience? Yes, I did. I did the purification rundown as the very first major service in Scientology back in 1987, and um, cost a few thousand bucks. It took me five days to get through it because I had zero drug history. I was uh, one of those weird teenagers who never took drugs because I actually believed in the whole say no to drugs thing. And, um, and so it was pretty quick. Um, the biggest thing about my experience with the Purif wasn't so much the Purif. I had one moment. I had one moment when I was in the sauna, and we were on. The, I was in there for five hours a day. Right, I drive down to Santa Barbara, sit for the sauna, sit in there for five hours, and then uh, drive home, or well, then get recruited to join staff, and then go home. So, um, so during that time, I experienced one moment in the sauna of a sort of catatonic, semi-conscious state. Uh, which I assumed was me running out the surgery that I had to have my tonsils removed when I was like four or five. And then um, I'm just shaking my head because that is such a ludicrous statement. Um, and then uh, let's see. Oh, and the other thing that I did enjoy about those five days, though, was uh, was kind of the running. You have to do a you have to do a half a 20 minutes to half an hour of a little warm up before you go in the sauna. And so I would go run down by the beach because the org, the Church of Scientology in Santa Barbara, was about four or five blocks from the beach. So I'd run down there, run around the beach, and then run back up and get into the sauna. So I enjoyed that. I thought that was fun. But overall, uh, you know, now that I know everything I know about the Purif, right, it's like stay the hell away from that thing. I, I got off scot-free. It was no big deal. It was five hours. You know, it was five days. It was like whatever. Uh, other people though, I've seen people, you know, cause I went on to administer the purification rundown when I was a staff member. So I would deliver it to other people and I saw people on that thing for months. That's not good for you. That is really, really bad for you. Especially when you're taking mega doses, like handfuls of vitamins. Oh, it's not good for you. Okay. Jay-Z Gonzo, are you taking a break? As you are taking a break, would it be possible while you're on your break just to upload some videos of Benson to keep his company? Just him doing silly stuff, asking for a friend. <laughs> That's a great question. That's a great idea. That's a great idea. I'm writing that down. All right. Let's bust through the rest of these because uh, I got to... Gonna have to. Speaking of Benson, I can hear him barking. I'm gonna have to let him back in. 
Uh, okay, Ron Mowgli, Greg's question is near to mine. I'm in Israel. Oh, man. Uh, and I am suddenly very aware of how political slash religion ideologies are so culty. When does a belief become coercive control? Okay, um, beliefs are used to enforce or enact coercive control. They are not coercive control. A belief is a belief. Coercive control is something somebody does to you. Coercive control is isolation, manipulation, and control. It is, it is getting a person isolated, either mentally or physically or both, uh, manipulating that person in such a way that they believe that the control that is now going to be exerted on them is necessary and important to their life and that they need to go along with it. And the control is always in a destructive fashion. It wears the person down. It, it, ta- it denies them human rights. It takes away their ability to live their life the way they want to if they were left alone. It removes, in other words, their self-determinism, their ability, their agency. Uh, that's what coercive control is all about. Any belief, any belief, anywhere in the world can be used to enact coercive control. Uh, you can take any belief and you can dial it up. You can dial up the extremity of the dedication to the belief. You can dial up the fear and terror that is involved in the beliefs. Let's say you're going to go to hell. Ah! Well, some people believe, yeah, I might go to hell. And other people believe, I'm going to hell. And they are really freaked out about it. And, when, and, and, and riling somebody up to that level of freak out about a belief is how you can go about controlling them. That's what the coercive control element is. And societies do this as well, right? And, and we see this. But societies need to do this in order to have group cohesion. So it's not necessarily coercive control because you're not isolating societies. But you can. But you can. And you can do the us versus them thing. And you can rile up a whole group of people to, around a belief set where they now think okay, well, the only way we can survive is to go kill everybody else or go kill all these other people who are absolutely positively, you know, not wanting us to live, right? And what you find in group situations of group versus group like that is you find the lunatic extreme fringe on one end and the lunatic extreme fringe on the other end. Those are the guys that are fighting and everybody else is just kind of getting dragged along in the process, um, that's a broad, gross generality, but it's a. But it, I, I think there's some accuracy to it. Uh, in other words, it's the extremists fighting the extremists, and everybody else is trying to tone down the extremists, calm down the extremists, deal with the extremists. But the extremists are extreme. That's their nature, right? And that's what we kind of see in these larger, broader conflicts. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I, again, I'm talking in very broad generalities because, you know, the, 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 the details become so complicated so quickly. Um, yeah. So anyway, as far as when does a belief, but I think in terms of answering your question, Ron, as far as um, when does the belief become destructive or when does it go over the edge? When does it become, when does it go too far? It's when the belief, the exact point is when the belief is being justified to hurt people to damage people, to destroy people, or things, right, or, or, or stuff that, you know, it, like when it, when it becomes a rationalization or a justification to 
in, in, in interfere substantially in the human rights or civil rights or free expression of other people to live their lives. When that conflict starts, that's when it's gone too far. There you go. Okay. Um, Henny uh, asks a question here. Oops, sorry. Let's go back. Oh, boy, I hope it didn't. There we go. And sorry, let me pull that back up here. There we go. What is the name of the woman who wrote a book about her time in Scientology and lost her husband to the cult's abuses? He wrote music. I think you're talking about Karen Presley. Um, and her book was called uh, Escaping Scientology, an insider's true story. There you go. All right. Um, Greg Gibson, do you think that cults like Church Scientology and JWs have the potential to become violent and militant? Yes, I do. Any group, any cult has the potential to do that. It all depends on the leadership, how the leadership utilizes its position to influence and control its members, and how. Uh, and what you're talking about is the process of radicalization. And any group can become radicalized. Even, I mean, hell, a Boy Scout troop can become radicalized. It all depends on how you're talking to them and how you're dealing with them and what you're getting them to believe about everybody outside their group, as, we've, as we went over earlier here today. Um, oh, hell yes. Debbie M., question, will you mention Anthony's free course? Yes, thanks for the reminder. Anthony Bagnabosco has let us know, and I posted the link in the community tab a week ago, to a free set of courses about street epistemology. And I will promote the hell out of that because that is good stuff. I think the first six modules have been released. They're all free. The whole course is going to be free. This is not some free intro, and then they're going to get you later. This is free stuff, and it is wonderful learning. I have had Anthony Magnabosco on my show a couple times on the, on the Sensibly Speaking podcast. I highly recommend you check it out. I'm not going to do a whole seminar today on street epistemology. It is really good stuff. And, um, and that course is the product of years of work by volunteers to put that thing together uh, in the best possible way. They have considered so many different ways and means of, of doing this process, and they have ethical guidelines. They have a lot of stuff connected with it to try to help people do it right and do it well and not use it as a tool of contention or use it as a way to abuse people or use it as a way to try to beat somebody down because they have beliefs that are different than yours. That is not what street epistemology is about, and it was never about that. So I hope you guys will check that out. I'll, uh, the link is um, on the community tab on my channel. I don't have it here in front of me, but, um, but that would be the, um, that'd be the way to go uh, in checking out that course. I hope you do. Okay, Starsky Mind Drummer, have you heard of Rayleighism? Uh, yes, I have. I've definitely heard of it. I looked into it some time ago. Um, I can't remember the specifics of it right now. It's one of so many groups I've looked into, but I remember it being kooky. <laughs> I, I could do a better rundown on it if I had some time to look it up. Sorry that I, um, that I don't. I'm trying to whizzy-bang through these things. So definitely... Um, Actually, you know what? Ask me, send me an email asking me about that so I will address it in a pre-recorded where I can give it a more 
thorough rundown for you. I'm happy to do that. Um, In Theta, ask me a question. I'm not sure. Can you recall some things about 2014, 2015? The environment in YouTube, social media at the time, was there any apprehension or fear at that time? Did it feel high stakes? Any reflections come to mind? I'm not sure what you're referring to. There were a few things I've run into in the, 10, in the many years that I've been on YouTube. The adpocalypses, the, um, the, the atheist plus... <laughs> Uh, attempt um, that you know the, there have been different things so I'm not sure what you're referring to in 2014-15 that was when I just got on YouTube and I was just kind of making my way around if I remember right at that time I, I, please be more specific in the question I'm not sure what you're referring to and I don't know how to answer that um, <laughs> Joe, I heard a little birdie tell me you do consultations. Yes, I do. Thank you for that. Uh, yes, I do consultations. Um, you, you guys are the best audience ever. Um, you can contact me. I am going to continue, by the way, doing consultations through December. I'm not shutting down at all on that. I am more than happy to help people one-on-one. -on -one. I do. Um, I can help educate. I can help uh, listen. I can help you know, kind of discuss the, 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 the experience that people have had in cults or coercive situations from, a, I have an understanding ear on that, right? Obviously, I know a lot about it. And, um, and of course, I've been through the, the process myself, and I like to help people with the recovery of it. I am not a therapist. I'm going to say, I say this every time. I'm going to keep saying it. I'm not a therapist, not a counselor, not a licensed therapist. That's not what I'm doing. I am not doing treatment. Uh, I educate, I inform, I listen, I advise. And, uh, and if you have family or friends who are involved in a cult situation, I can help with that too in terms of advising on what to do because people generally screw it up. And, uh, and not through no fault of their own, it's just you know what you think you should do is generally probably what you shouldn't do is how it works out. Uh, so there you go. Um. Young Matador, what are your New Year's resolutions for 2024? Right now, it is to hit the ground running in 24. I'm, I'm really trying to get my batteries recharged through December here. That's what this is uh, kind of really all about is, you know, let's get some of the burnout off and let's kind of recharge and let's, and let's really get 2024 going. Just like I did when I hit the ground running in 23. I mean, this year has been, I don't think this year has been a big failure for me or a big you know, loss. I'm not treating 2023 as a, as the, you know, the year of, of, of failure. I think I accomplished some great things this year. And I think some of the stuff that we created and talked about this year was absolutely wonderful and amazing stuff. And in my own personal life, of course, I, I made some great strides forward. So 2024, I really want to, I want more of that. And I want less of the distraction and less of the nonsense. Um, and less of the weird, you know, group crap that, that, that we get up to in these groups, right? And every ex-cult community, by the way, has this stuff. I, you know, there's nothing at all, nothing at all unique or different to what's going on right now with the whole aftermath debacle that hasn't happened in every other ex-cult group I've, I've been part of and seen, uh, you know, including personalities uh, you know, suddenly blowing up, right? And there being all this damage and, and, and stuff as a result of it. It happens. It's a thing. We, we weather it. We survive it. We move on. 
So, um, so for 2024, my resolution is move on and keep going and create better and better things for you guys. Um, that's, that's my, that's where, that's where I'm at right now. I know that's super generalized, but that's where I'm at right now. Um, okay. Okay. Asking where to email me. Oh, okay. Email me at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Uh, you can also email me through my website, mncriticalthinking.com. Um, and, uh, and there's a contact form on there that you can reach out to me. Um, you're not going to be able to write lots and lots, but you can put enough in there that we can then interact by email. And I will email you then from my, you know, my more uh, normal email address. Okay, um, let's see what we got here. I think this is the last one. UK, um, Luis Farrakhan is banned from entering the UK due to his bigoted views and disruptive influence. Should the UK ban Miscavige as well as he offers nothing positive whatsoever and is linked to the NOI? Um, That's an interesting question. Because I had, you know, I mentioned earlier, I went on the whole roll about not banning Scientology and all that. It can have a blowback effect. It can have a reverse effect if you do that kind of thing, right? You can generate more interest and popularity in a thing by trying to get rid of it. So that's always a factor. I wonder how much of a factor it has been for the NOI and for Louis Louis Farrakhan in the UK to not be able to go there. I wonder what the blowback of that has been in the UK. Um, Because my thought is, yeah, do it, right? Don't let Niscavage in. Because you're absolutely right. He has no positive influence whatsoever, and he's directly linked to the NOI. And you're absolutely right. All the same reasons for banning Louis Farrakhan from going into the UK are all the same reasons you should ban David Miscavige. You know, and if a country deems an individual as an actual threat to their population, that country absolutely has a right to deny that individual entry into their country. No question about it. And David Miscavige definitely is a threat to the UK citizens. Period. End of story. So, yeah. Two thumbs up on that. I'm, I'm down for that. That's a different thing from trying to tell a whole bunch of people in a country that you don't have the right to believe something or you don't have the right to do auditing. Or you don't have the right to read L. Ron Hubbard's books. Yeah, you can't be doing that to people. But banning the leader because there's actual substantive reasons and evidence to show why he's a threat, that's good. I like that. I like that idea. Um at least right now, as I sit here talking to you about it, I do. Okay, guys. So I think we've reached the end of the questions and uh, certainly the amount that I'm going to answer today because we've been at it for an hour and a half. This is awesome. I hope, let me pop back over to the, uh, yeah. Okay, good. Looks like, um, looks like things are fine. Okay. Thanks, guys. I really, 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 really just can't say enough about how heartwarming it has been for me to get the support and, uh, and love from you guys that I've gotten. It's meant everything, okay? And I don't ignore it, and it doesn't mean nothing to me. It means everything to me. That all being said, 
Thank you for your support as I'm leaving. You will get a Scientology straight up and vertical, like I said, tomorrow and every week through December. And I'll see you back again. And I might just, by the way, pop up on a couple live streams. Uh, so this week, we do have a live stream planned for Tuesday. Uh, Jeff, uh, PTS for Life and I are going to be doing a live stream uh, then. And, uh, and then I've got a couple interviews uh, for the new year. And then I'm taking off in December. So anyway, uh, last one. Thank you very much, everybody. Bye-bye.